Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined, as always, by Drs. Steph Boye and Barry Casson. Hey, guys. Hey, Danny. Hey, Danny. Thanks for having us. Sorry I got technically delayed today, but happy to be here. <laughs> you always make it sound like uh, I'm inviting you on my podcast, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's our podcast. This is our baby. It's been a while, Thanks, right? How are you guys doing? like a couple months since we did this. Yeah, that's right. We should probably, you know what? Quick explainer to the listeners. So when you finish listening to a podcast or we finish recording one, Nikki, our producer, comes around and powers us down and we just sit here motionless until someone comes to us with a new case (laughs) and then we get powered back on and do these recordings. (laughs) So if you do want to hear more, you are welcome to get in touch to present a case. We always need to get appropriate consent from patients, but you can contact us at foundationmorningreport at gmail.com. You can get in touch through Twitter at Paul underscore report or on our website, stpaulsmorningreport.com. So thanks for the transition there, Steph. <laughs> and, and that's how this one materialized, right? Yeah, that's exactly how. So um, he got in touch with us. This is our, our very first international case. So this is coming from our neighbor, the United States of America. Our guest today is Michael Camerata. He's an R3 from UCSF, and we're really excited to have him. So thanks for joining us, Michael. Hey, thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, it's a real, real honor for me. This uh, podcast was suggested to me on Spotify, and I've been a big fan ever since. So I'm really excited to present the case to you guys today. And uh, I had been debating a few different cases that I had, and uh, but want to reassure you that this one is not TV or Castleman. Um, <laughs> Ah, uh, damn, that was going to be my, those are the two well, things I wrote it. down. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Michael. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, so long, Barry. The yeah. two diagnoses, you know. Yeah. That's all I know. I, I'm learning to spell it. Uh, well, and, Michael, we really appreciate you you preparing a case and uh, and joining us. It, it, the, the pleasure is ours. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much. And should I jump right in? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we're we're probably good to go. Unless, guys, any any old news or new news? Not on my end. Fabulous. All right, Michael, take it away. All right. So, so this patient is a 74-year-old man. Uh, he has a past medical history of high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and metastatic clear cell of the kidney. He was diagnosed a year ago or so and had previously stable metastatic disease. He also has a recent history of septic arthritis of the right knee and is now uh, status post an arthroscopic washout about one month ago. He also has a history of gout on allopurinol, and he's coming in with fevers and altered mental status to the ER. So you go down and see him, and on your initial evaluation, you aren't able to get too much history from the patient uh, due to his inattention and confusion, but you get some collateral from the brother, and three days ago, he was discharged from a skilled nursing facility to his brother's home. His brother said that he was profoundly tired and unwilling to participate with PT, but otherwise had been cognitively at baseline. And then the night before he came in, uh, he had difficulty ambulating um, due to some weakness when normally he could uh, walk with his walker. His brother also mentioned that he thinks he accidentally took a double dose of zamlodipine yesterday. And then this morning, uh, his brother noted that he was far more delirious and incomprehensible, so he called 911. And then on arrival to the ER, he is subrile to 39.8 tachycardic in the low 100s with a blood pressure of 86 over 64, and he's satting well on room air. The ER 
begin to work up and start them on uh, vancomycin and ertapenem. So I have more history to give you all, but I was uh, wondering what you all are thinking so far. What do you think, guys? He's he's a month out from this clean-out procedure on his knee, but that's the sort of most recent relevant issue. And so, you know, I'd, I'd want to have a good look at his knee, obviously. I'm sure you did not uh, bring on a knee septic arthritis case, so I think, but I think, you know, in the real world, that's what where I would be focusing first. He's just, just come out of a new facility, and so I'd have a really good look at his medications and make sure that there was not some thing that he's been recently started on that either just isn't agreeing with him or that he's having an idiosyncratic drug reaction to. I'd want to know if he was, like, if he had a catheter in his bladder at this uh, facility. And then, you know, I, I mean, I'd want to know, like, more details around exactly what happened at the facility, any recent sort of outbreaks of anything or, or whatever. But initially, I think I would start with the assumption that this is an infection until I have some other clue to suggest otherwise. Hmm. And I think I'd, I'd add to that, like, you know, Steph, you would have obviously looked into this, but I'd be very curious which what was cultured from the knee. Is it some sticky bug that might have stuck to his heart or something like that? So that would probably be my, my first uh, dig through his like past stays. I'd be probably most interested in that, given that he's kind of presenting. I don't know if we use the term SIRS anymore, SIRS sepsis picture, um, but that would be kind of on my mind. Barry, uh, what are you thinking? Uh, and it's not Castleman's or, or yeah. TB, as we know. So. Uh, well, I you know I, I share your both your approaches. I mean, it's I guess all the past history is relevant, but I mean, the, to me, this is you know, I mean, the facility and what was that? Wh- who was he with in the facility? I'm assuming he was there because of his knee, but that's the other reason why was he there? What type of facility it is? Confusion and fever with hypotension uh, certainly would support the diagnosis of. An infection, and so I'd look pretty closely at the people he was in contact with at the facility, and the patients, and the other issues, and look hard for infection. Cool. So, Michael, maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of the rundown of what what happened when he got to the hospital. Yeah, sure. So you do some more chart review and gather a bit more about his oncologic history. And uh, so, two years ago, he he presented with hemoptysis and was found to have hilar and mediastinal lymphadenopathy, and at that time was found to have a heterogeneously enhancing solid right renal mass that was biopsied, and at that time was diagnosed with clear cell renal cell carcinoma, and a brain MRI was negative for intracranial METs. And uh, a month later, he was started on ipinevo, or filimumab and nivolumab, for cycle one, and that cycle was complicated by some mild transaminitis and hypercalcemia, both of which resolved. And then over the next two months, he underwent cycles two and three of immunotherapy. And then two months prior to admission, he began having non-bloody diarrhea, and he was started on 80 milligrams of prednisone for checkpoint inhibitor-related colitis, and at that time, it being Nevo were held. He didn't have a colonoscopy or any imaging was performed at that time, and he since recently finished his prednisone taper over the course of about two months. And then, so it was one month prior to this admission that he was hospitalized for the right knee septic arthritis, and he had an arthroscopic IND. The arthrocentesis that visit showed 140,000 whites, 90% PMNs, and the gram stain was negative, but his cultures grew strep agalactiae from both the blood and the knee, and his TTE that time was uh, negative for endocarditis. And he completed a four-week course of ceftriaxone while he was at the skilled nursing facility. So at home, he takes 
Oh, and actually also mentioned he had had some issues with mild asymptomatic hyponatremia for about four months prior, and that had mm. previously improved with IV fluids. At home, he takes uh, allopurinol, amlodipine, some 300 milligrams of nightly gabapentin, 100 mg of daily losartan, and uh, is no longer on prednisone as of two days ago, and is also on a statin. And for his social history, he's, he was born in India, but moved to the U.S. several decades ago, and has no known TB exposures. Uh, he's a retired engineer and uh, has no significant time spent in Central Valley and no substance use of any kind. And then I can tell you about his exam if you'd like. Sure. So generally, he's uh, ill-appearing, somewhat inattentive, but oriented to person, place, and time with no scleroelectris and a normal oropharynx. His cardiopulmonary exam was normal, except for regular tachycardia, and his belly was soft and non-tender. His skin, it was dry and scaly and hyperpigmented and ichthyotic. And uh, on extremity exam, he has no edema, but his right knee is warm, swollen, and tender with reduced range of motion and pain on axial load. So I'll stop there and see what additional thoughts you all have. Oh, boy. So, Michael, just a question. Was he mentating all right when you saw him? He kind of waxed and waned, I'd say. If you were able to sort of really keep his attention, then he he was oriented to to person in place, but it was hard to get a conversation going with him or any kind of real history. And and before we kind of go through our thoughts a little bit more, so the last course of IPI and nivolumab was approximately how long before his presentation? His last was about two months prior. At that time, then when he had the okay. checkpoint inhibitor-related colitis, and then it was discontinued. Okay. Um, so maybe, Steph, what, what are your thoughts kind of coming in the door there? Um, I mean, like a lot of cases that we hear in this show, but also a lot of cases that we see in real life, this is getting like muckier and muckier uh, with each new fact that is presented to us. Like, now, I mean, new thoughts include the, I mean, the chemo, whether it's, you know, just now presenting with some chemo related complications seems unlikely because we're talking about something that was last administered two months ago. But I think we're we're still in the getting to know our checkpoint inhibitors uh, part of world history. So I don't know, I'd, I'd sort of park that and read about that. He's also now just, just finished a course of ceftriaxone just within the last couple of days. And so whether that was suppressing some infection somewhere. I think that's like now going to be harder to figure out because if he's just just stopped a fairly broad antibiotic. Now there's a history of previously kind of unsatisfactorily explained hyponatremia that I'm not happy about that I I will want a better uh, understanding of. And he's also just just stopped a course of prednisone. And so now this Mm -hmm. is like, this is going to get pretty difficult to figure out because theoretically the prednisone it was administered for this possibly chemo-related colitis. Are we sure that it was that it was chemo-related colitis and not some other thing? Like he wasn't accidentally being treated with prednisone for new diagnosis IBD or something like that. And so this is right. like going to be not that easy. Shame on you, Michael. As a new guest from our neighbor down <laughs> south, I was hoping you'd bring something a little easier. Yeah, like a pneumonia. And we could have crushed it and, uh, <laughs> and ended the show after 10 minutes. I do have a couple of comments about the immune checkpoint inhibitors. It, it just so it, like this does overlap a little bit with some of my my particular research interests. And so it, it does turn out that the immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, you can get immune phenomenon that occur months 
uh, mm. to even in some cases reported like one or two years after last exposure. Yes. Um, obviously, the further away you get from it, the more you wonder like, okay, well, that that actually might just be coincidence. And like, how do you know it's it's uh, related? But ipilimumab and nivolumab commonly cause colitis. They also the kind of the number one or two spot in terms of immune phenomenon would be thyroid disease. But there are mm. other endocrinopathies like adrenal insufficiency, uh, which of course would overlap with the coming off of steroids. So those things do kind of float around in my head, but neither of those things, to my knowledge, on their own would cause a, a big swollen knee. Um, so, so either, you know, there is, there, he's actually having like broad immune activation. He's having multiple immune syndromes spontaneous, like kind of simultaneously. So he had colitis. Maybe there's an endocrinopathy. I'm making that up, right? We don't know that. And maybe there's an autoimmune oligoarthritis or monoarthritis, which is also relatively common with those agents. So in terms of picking one thing that could solve everything, yes, it could be immune checkpoint related, but we don't want to jump to the end. We, of course, need to kind of work through each of the problems um, kind of individually and collectively like we usually do, uh, have our problems list like we said we would kind of outline for people and uh, and work through them uh, individually like that. So so I, I put that out there without giving a, a likelihood that that's the, the answer here. Barry, any, anything on your mind? Well, just the, uh, I guess just the obvious, because we've been told he has, he's grew strep from his knee. So I'm, I'm assuming that, and he was treated. We weren't told, and he had a washout, and I'm, I'm assuming if he was discharged from hospital, but, and maybe this is the wrong assumption, because maybe this is a continuation of the hospital, that, that it did get better and then got worse. So, so we do have at least one organism that has been identified. And then, as you both have outlined, I think the exposure to, prednisone and it's tapering or assuming it's tapered and it's withdrawal now in the last two days may or may not be coincidental. And then the checkpoint inhibitors and the, and the vast array of documented or at least mentioned and continuing to be mentioned different syndromes that occur or different organs that are affected would be the other thing that I'd be thinking about. Okay. So I think we have some broad thoughts. Maybe we'll, we'll go back to Michael. Maybe you can kind of tell us what the, the team's thoughts were early on. I think we, we, I think we should at least attempt to approach what we would do right now because this is a fellow that's maybe I'll just say, you know, I mean, given his shock picture, which I think is a, a distributed shock, I would say the way it is. So assuming that all the other aspects of shock are, are being looked for at this point, I think that giving him targeted and then broad spectrum antibiotics, fluids and corticosteroids is something I would do just up front while we're trying to sort it out. And actually, before we even jump into that, I mean, I think sometimes a thing that I sometimes see in a teaching hospital is that a person of this age comes in confused, and there's kind of an abandoning of, of the gathering of a thoughtful history and a, and a detailed physical exam. So I'm not saying that that happened here, but like, we'd really want to know that there's not some easy symptom here that we could just uh, start off with. Like, is there really been no diarrhea at all? No urinary symptoms, no cough, no stiff neck, nothing like that. Like, I just want to make sure that nothing, no sort of key log here has just been skipped over because he's presented mm -hmm. like not 100% sharp. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So in terms of kind of what we're actually going to do, so you're, so Steph, you're going to refine the history a little bit. Um, Barry, you had some thoughts on treatment. So Emerge started Vanco or Depenum, and you're going to add steroids up front. 
and we've kind of outlined some of the dis- disease entities that we're looking for. And of course, we're pan culturing. I think I would, uh, I would want an echo early on in hospital stay, and we're gonna maybe do a knee aspiration, or if there was any knee replacement, we'd call ortho for knee aspiration. I'd consider thyroid and adrenal testing up front. Sound sound good? I think the other thing that's on my mind is that he has a a renal cancer that is now untreated. You know, he's off steroids, he's off chemotherapy, and so I'm oh, yeah. not sure actually what to do with that piece of information right now, but it is something that I want to know more about. Like I want to make sure that that he's not you know, he might be what if he what if all he's having here is like adrenal you know, infiltration of his, uh, with his renal cancer, like totally. it was a metastatic process. And now we, we sort of precipitated adrenal crisis by stopping his steroids. Like that could be a very simple explanation. Mm-hmm. And then he's got a little bit of tumor fever or something like, I don't know. I just, you know, I think right. at some point during the, during, early on in this hospital stay, we're going to interrogate the status of his uh, cancer. Right. So do some like re- restaging of where he's at at this point. Yeah. Um, and and probably in the emerge, I mean, coming in with uh, altered mental status fever, um, he very well might have gotten like a CT head or a CT head and abdo um, for, for sure, kinda, given that he has the renal disease. Okay, so Michael, maybe we'll we'll turn it back to you. You can kind of fill us in on uh, what what you folks were thinking. Okay, great. Well, love your thoughts so far and uh, the yeah. work that you guys are thinking of. Uh, I can, could I share with you the labs and the imaging that we have and, uh, and tell you a bit more about his course? Does that work? For sure. That sounds okay. great. So on his labs, he had a slightly elevated white count of 10.4 and a moderate normocytic anemia that was stable from prior, 93. He had normal platelets and a normal diff. On his uh, metabolic panel, he had a hyponatremia of 130. Normal uh, potassium and chloride, his bicarb was 17, and his anion gap was 9. His BUN and creatinine were normal uh, uh, at his baseline. His albumin was, was low at 27, and his calcium, mag, and phosphorus were normal. His TSH on admission was normal, and his LTs were just known for a slightly elevated alkalos and T-billy 1.6. His coags were normal, fibrinogen was slightly elevated, and his UA was also normal with no blood or pyuria. Uh, which also reminds me that I wanted to mention stuff that he didn't have any, no diarrhea, no cough, no meningismus, uh, no history of um, recent urinary catheter or any urinary symptoms. And then uh, his he had a VPG on, on admission with to the ER with a normal blood gas except for lactate of 2.3. And then he had markedly elevated inflammatory markers with an ESR over 100 and uh, also a CRP close to the high end of assay. And then he had a negative trope in BNP. His, uh, he had blood cultures drawn on admission, which were pending. And then as far as imaging, he had a, a clear chest X-ray. Uh, non-con head CT was, was negative, and um, he had a CT chest that showed a small nodule in the left lower lobe that was unchanged, as well as a area of small ground glass in the left upper that could be uh, consistent with a, a small focus of infection or aspiration. And then on his abdomen and pelvis, he had no evidence of acute intra-abdominal infection. He had a similar size of his right renal mass, and then unchanged metastatic abdominal disease. He had some possible lucencies in the lumbar spine, or possible metastatic lesions, rather. And then also had a CT of his right lower extremity with that just had nonspecific synovial enhancement with surrounding inflammatory changes. And nothing of his head. Oh, sorry, you gave, me the, you gave us a CT of his head. Uh, non-con- it's a non-contrest. Non-con- non-con- correct. Non-con- That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
the non-con it's you know right. doesn't tell us kind of what we're what we're really after mm-hmm. it's interesting isn't it that you can have like i never i'm i'm often in this situation of so we're trying to decide like is this an infection or some other inflammatory thing and he's got yeah. inflammatory markers in the sense that his esr and crp are elevated but he's got a uh, if anything high fibrinogen and a normal cbc differential <laughs> and to me like right that that argues against like i look at that and i say that really does not that's not the pattern of a big infection but i i, I couldn't say yeah, that agree. i couldn't quote you any data to say that that pattern argues against infection just to me if you're that sick that you come in with hypotension tachycardia and your fibrinogen and your diff are normal i it shakes my confidence all of a sudden that this is an infection. Is is that a wrong way to think about that, or what's your experience, Bay? Well, I I guess we all anchor on certain things, and I guess that that's uh, I, I I don't I can only say that our pretest probability that this is infection was high. It's still I think high. There are other reasons that he might be hypotensive, but that by itself I think is unusual. But I wouldn't use that particularly in a negative sense. I mean, I think that we're all alert to the fact that there's multiple potential issues and maybe the only thing it would do for me is make me less comfortable with the overall understanding of his presentation. But I've been uncomfortable since the beginning, so it would just add to my discomfort. <laughs> for for me, what it says is like if in, you know, the next 24 to 48 hours, we're not making any progress with the antibiotics that we have. I, obviously, I will start to ask myself: Do we have the right antibiotics? Have we have we not identified the correct source? But in addition to that, those sort of doubting questions, I will also ask myself if maybe we're treating a not infection with antibiotics. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, uh, I but totally I think agree. your point is well taken. Like, it, I, I think like you have seen so many septic or so many kind of critically ill people that you know your gut is telling you this just doesn't quite have the flavor of a nasty infection, especially like if this guy is kind of hypotensive and his like kidney function is like perfect, like, uh, you know, not that everyone gets a kidney injury when they have sepsis, but it, it's kind of all part of the package of like the end organ damage of hypotension or sepsis. And I suppose like the CBC and, and the rest of his picture is just like not convincing for the terribly sick. Um, to yeah, you, or, normal like, for, platelets. For a, a classic septic. Yeah. That is unusual. I also find that unusual because like platelets are also an inflammatory marker in immune diseases. So like even if whether this is an uh, an infection or an autoimmune disease or a medication related inflammatory syndrome of some kind or whatever we come up with, platelets are usually something low, high. <laughs> They're usually not normal. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I totally hear that. Before we started all of this, before we got the information, I mean, even at a more basic level, when someone comes in febrile, confused, and no specific etiology in the, in the consideration, and in this case, we had a knee that was red and swollen, but um, it's always, there was always the discussion mm-hmm. of when, you know, is this a CNS infection and we've just not picked it up? So totally. is this, and that whole idea of, when to LP or should you LP or should you do this or should you, and when should you do it? I mean, that's, I'm not suggesting he has it. I'm just suggest that's one of the questions that just be part of his assessment and whether we would or wouldn't do it. And I agree yeah. that, uh, that um, there are things that just don't quite add up. And I suppose I thought Michael was going to give us one more piece of information in terms of a ferritin, which would really 
have put us in a potential tizzy. So um, <laughs> please don't tell us it's ferritin. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, can, can I ask? So, so at this stage, you see this person in the emergency with all those possible diagnoses. Uh, Barry and Steph, would either of you LP them that night? Um, or would that be kind of, uh, let, let's wait on that. Yes, that could be part of it, but but not yet. Yeah, mm. I probably would I probably would wait until the next morning. I think that uh, I tr- I'd cover him with meningitic doses, if you will. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I guess I'd wait to get the preliminary information and see what happens if I correct, corrected his blood pressure, assuming that I would be able to correct, correct his blood pressure, because this just could be part of his shock, his confusion. Yeah. And and so I think I I don't think I'd d- jump in and do it that night that immediately I'd probably wait for at least you know six to twelve hours. If the neck is totally supple, I would do the same. Okay, cool. All right. So I think we've we 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 previously kind of went over our our general approach for investigations going forward. So we got the preliminary stuff here. Lots of scans, not necessarily the ones that we're after. I just want to remind us that we did get the ground glass in the left upper lobe and either I dreamt it or or you did say it, but I thought at the onset of his, his kidney malignancy, he presented with some hemoptysis. So at least I, I think he said that. So the ground glass, I just want to keep that on my problem list if he starts to have any hemoptysis that there was actually maybe some early sign of some inflammation or bleeding at that that point. I, I'm going to be boring and redundant, maybe not redundant, I'm, I think I've been redundant for a lot of things, but I'm going to be boring and come back to the, his history that we talked about originally. And this is a man from India who's had his uh, immune system tinkered with and now comes in with uh, a sepsis-like picture in shock <laughs> with uh, an altered mental status. And and it, it isn't Castleman's that I'm thinking about. <laughs> it's the only other diagnosis I know. <laughs> Okay. So <laughs> well, that that would certainly uh, that would certainly cross my mind yet again. Fair enough. Okay. TV. So, uh, Michael, maybe we'll turn back to you. <laughs> yeah, just okay. in case in case great. the listeners didn't get that. TV. What uh, what happened next for this guy? Yeah. So we continue him on broad spectrum antibiotics, and his blood pressure stabled out with uh, with IV fluids, and we ended up calling or so as you suggested, Danny, and um, they ended up trying a couple of RTCs, they did, they tried, uh, and each time yielded two dry taps. So at that point, they weren't able to actually get any fluid from the knee. So I guess with that information, and with his blood pressure stabling out, would you, would you all give steroids up front? And what would you, what would your discussion with ortho be at this point? (laughs) Hey, Danny, your turn. So, so I guess I would ask how, like, if these were blind taps, then I would have IR try it with ultrasound. And if the issue is, and I'd review that CT scan, is all they saw synovitis or is there effusion? Because if there's effusion, either like unless it's so thick, you literally can't pull it through an 18 gauge needle, it, it should be gettable. So so it might just require imaging guidance to do that. So that would probably be first stop. And then kind of like this is an important item, like to figure out if there is an infection in the knee or not, you know, maybe determines the length of antibiotics he's on. If there's no infection, then we have to come up with another reason. Is this activation of his old gout? And it's actually, it's not linked to the other things in that they're not on, under the same umbrella diagnoses. It's just gout that was precipitated by dehydration or medications or this or that. And, and so 
I think it really matters. And I think that that's our easiest tissue to get. And um, just in another note that you can also get malignant seeding of, of a synovium. So I think I really do want fluid. And so IR would be first stop. And second stop would be, you know, discussing the value of the surgical biopsy or, or a surgical drain slash washout slash, you know, get some path from that. Because this is it's important. We need to know. Uh, so I'm not sure that I it, it actually I guess I should ask Michael, is the knee like looking better? Or is he is it feeling better as as time goes on during his hospital stay? This is all still between yeah, this is actually still hospital day one. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> he's like <laughs> okay. still in the emergency room and hasn't gotten a bed yeah. yet kind of thing. So okay. um, so knee, the knee is not uh, looking any better. Got it. So I guess short answer is I'd ask for IR's help if these were blind taps because I'd like it done under ultrasound. So Michael, just review with us. It was in the the uh, imaging showed thickening of the synovium. Is that correct? How did I, I we don't remember the wording? Yes, uh, sort of non-specific synovial enhancement with surrounding inflammatory changes. Didn't comment specifically on effusion and the read I have here, um, yeah. but the the X-ray was suggestive of effusion. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think when they when they say that on an X-ray, I think it's just important. Like they're not seeing like it implies effusion that the joint space is widened or that there's some darkness where it should be, you know, white. So so it has the the lucency of water, but that could just as easily be synovial thickening. So in the same way that you know a mediastinum being wide does not mean cardiomegaly. I'd say like an x-ray suggesting effusion doesn't mean it's effusion. It could be other things too. Um, so I just kind of keep that in mind as I read that report. Can I ask mm-hmm. a dumb, dumb question? <laughs> sure. The, this strep agalactiae in the knee, should we be at least pausing for a second to think about how that got there in the first place? Like this was, a, this was not a mechanical knee. There was no recent history of trauma. Like how did that? How did he seed his knee in the first place? And 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 I realize sometimes we don't, we never figure that answer out. But you know, like I don't know, um, that's weird. And I'd want to know that there was a good a good workup for that. I guess presumed if it was non traumatic, presumed bacteremia in the first place. I don't think that's a dumb dumb question. I think that's a good question. That's totally worth investigation. I think I would start by doing my own little like side look at uh, that strep species and be like, oh, is this like a common bug I, sh- I should be seeing a lot when I see a septic arthritis? Because it's not. <laughs> like, I, I haven't seen it uh, with any frequency. So that's a very good point. Okay, so maybe we'll we'll turn it back over to Michael. I think we've, we, we still have kind of similar uh, differential as before. Sure. Um, so, so what happened next? Yeah, so it's getting late in the evening and unfortunately IR is not available at the time to, to so and ortho was actually worried about the knee enough that they took him back to the OR uh, for an urgent incision and drainage. So the fluid that they got showed 21,000 whites with 99% neutrophils, 86,000 reds and no crystals. There wasn't actually any purulence in the joint but there were loculations that the orthopedic team said were consistent with septic arthritis. So specimens were sent for bacterial, fungal, and AFB, and they were all preliminarily negative. And uh, during the procedure, uh, despite having blood pressure stabilized prior, um, during the procedure, he he required a bit of pressure support. So he had received three liters of IV fluids, but ended up being seen by the ICU triage fellow, 
who felt that uh, he was actually going to be stable for the uh, step-down unit um, or what's called the, the TCU at our, um, at our hospital. And he was able to be weaned off pressers. And by this time, it's it's overnight. And uh, per the orthopedist report, the patient was actually doing well um, and feeling quite well. Hmm. I find that quite concerning. Somebody must have given you know, him steroids at some point. stress. Yeah. Did he get any steroids at, at this point? So at this point, no, he has not received any steroids yet. I think I, I, I think I would have probably reached a, a treatment threshold at that point to at least support with uh, with some steroids, even while we're figuring this out. You know, I probably would have sent a random cortisol before that as part of workup, ACTH, that sort of stuff. But I, yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably start treating empirically and I would keep the antibiotics and the steroids. Barry had already done that. Not sure that I committed one way or another, but now, now I'm worried. Not tolerating physiologic stress of, you know, a moderate surgical procedure is important. Absolutely. So can I take you to the now about seven hours post-op when we're rounding on the patient in the morning? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's hear it. Okay. So um, for the sign-outs from the, from the OR, he had stabilized and had been doing well. But then that morning we went and saw him and he was pretty uncomfortable appearing, minimally responsive to questions and um, more confused than prior. His, his vitals were notable for a normal temperature, but heart rate with sinus tack in the 130s. And his blood pressure was dropping again, 70s over 40s. The uh, our rapid response team had put him on two liters of nasal cannula, but he was actually satting fine at the time. And a, a finger stick glucose was checked and his blood glucose was 30. And so he was urgently given an ample D50. On exam, so he was confused, looking around the room, breathing quickly. But his exam had really... Um, was rather unchanged besides the, um, the surgical site. And then his pertinent lab changes were notable for now a, a creatinine bump from his baseline. And then Procal was elevated at, at nine. And his BBG showed a mild respiratory alkalosis and a lactate of 3.4. And the CRP was now, again, uptrending. Uh, the AM cortisol was still pending. And he had no other new imaging besides the chest X-ray at the time, which was unchanged. And his hemoglobin was also stable. Hmm. This guy's dying. What do you guys think? Any, is that... Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, are are you uh, tweaking to any like specific overarching diagnosis here? Nobody's trying to die. He is. Yeah. This guy is trying to die. I mean, he's been in hospital now. You know, twelve or eighteen hours. He's had theoretically a source control procedure, and finds himself in much worse yeah. shape afterward. Totally. He is more confused now, and whether that's perfusion or whether that's that we're missing something. I mean, he needs steroids, but he probably needs to be in an ICU setting and he needs central access and he needs all of those things just to buy us time to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah. Barry, anything on your mind at this point? Um, no, I haven't really changed uh, from the beginning. I still think he's, he's you know, he, he's in, he's had a variable course of subacute septic shock. I, I still think that that's the most likely mm-hmm. diagnosis and, and I'm not, wouldn't it really wouldn't matter what the morning cortisol showed? It really wouldn't bother me. I mean, I think that there's other reasons. I would have put him on steroids, as I said originally, and and I think we still, uh, you know, as we we this if this were the source, and it doesn't sound entirely like this is the source, raises a question of a source that we haven't yet at least explored, and that gets back into the CNS. But those are it's kind of the same theme that I've had over again, and. Yeah, I suppose, uh, is it the right organism and are, are we treating something different? So 
yeah same thing hmm. i think i i think i'm uh, i had similar kind of feelings to steph where you know if this was all septic knee which is the story that right like michael you're getting the story from the orthopedics team like this looks like a septic knee even if we didn't culture anything specifically but i mean it's it's pretty early so we don't know what the cultures really are i think the story i'm hearing is still very concerning for uh like some kind of endocrinopathy we talked about adrenal insufficiency and you know barry you've already treated i i would want that you know the testing to be done up front before we treat and and hopefully we've sent that kind of prophylactically and just like because because i didn't articulate it before but nivolumab and ipilimumab as a group you can get adrenal insufficiency but you can also get like uh, hypophysitis and and panhypopit is another mechanism so if i didn't say it before i would also want the a tsh uh, sent there sent to right thyroid being an important piece of the puzzle and t3 t4 um, anything else you guys are sending at this point to try and clarify diagnosis well, I guess if you're sending for that and you're wondering as an HCTH would, but, but again, yeah, I think these are all possibility, possible mechanisms if he has this, but I still will think we're still in the dark about why he has it. I just, okay. I just think, uh, and the reason I, re- I realize I sound like a catastrophizer here and I don't mean to, it's just that I think sometimes <laughs> we get stuck kind of like staring at our uh, navels while a patient goes down the tubes. And I, I do see that sometimes. So I'm not suggesting that like, mm-hmm. I just I just think it's okay sometimes to get off the diagnostic train and to get on the saving the patient's life train so that we can all live to uh, sort out what what is happening. Um, I'm just highlighting that for for any of the learners who are listening to this. Like, no, it's okay. We don't have to figure this out on day one of the hospital stay, um, but we do need to try to keep the patient alive if we can. Mm-hmm. And what would be kind of hearing what what's already been done for this guy? What would be your kind of management? plans at this point or what was what would you do i guess he needs, uh, he needs to be in the unit and he's heading he's heading for life support yeah yeah okay so that's kind of the that that's our uh, team suggestion so michael what, what did you folks do yeah so uh when we saw him we we're very concerned as you all were as well uh and so we brought in his antibiotics to vancomycin and miropenem and he was started on norepinephrine while he was still on the floor awaiting an icu bed we got additional access and while he was getting additional fluids. And then we, we did start stress dose steroids. He got a hydrocortisone at 100 milligrams and uh, ended up transferring to the ICU. And for about two days, or really over the course of 24 hours or so, required pressors, but we were able to, um, and at one point up to, to, to two pressors, he was on both norepinephrine and, and vasopressin, but he stabilized out and ended up doing better and eventually was weaned off of the pressors and and with our pressor wean we uh, were able to space out the steroids and taper those as well the am cortisol on the day of his icu transfer was seven um, and his tsh was normal we didn't have any cth from in hospital but a couple other tests that were sent were well, he ended up that admission having an mri knee that did not show any evidence of osteo and his bacterial dna on the universal pcr that was sent from the or excuse me, his universal PCR from the surgical specimen did not show any bacterial DNA. And ID was consulted and the repeat debridement was considered his date of source control. And their thought was that the initial arthroscopic uh, ID that he had was just insufficient and that he had um, ongoing lingering infection in the knee. And then 
as I mentioned, he was able to taper off of steroids and continue, or taper down on steroids and continue on hydrocortisone 10 and then 5. And uh, I have some more labs that I can share with you and uh, share our, our final diagnostic thoughts if that works for you all. Would, would you mind, j- just because units might not convert uh, necessarily, an AM cortisol of 7 is normal? Oh, uh, great question. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Uh, that uh, it's actually indeterminate. So, had that come back um, prior to his surgery, then it would have warranted further testing of his HPA axis with an ACTH level. Interesting. Uh, ours, uh, ours is uh, a little higher. So, an, an AM cortisol of seven is like zero. That uh, that would be not not good. Okay, so uh, yeah, so why don't you fill us in on uh, what what your kind of diagnostic thoughts were at that point? So, Michael, before you do that, Michael, just just tell us at this point before you go into that next book, is he now on the ward, mentating, talking well, vital signs are stable? Is that where we're at right now? Yes, at this point, he had his washout. He initially required fluids and pressors, stress those steroids, and then over the course of days, just improved. Was able to. Narrow antibiotics to just ceftriaxone per ID's recommendations, and uh, he eventually transferred out of the unit and back to the floor and was mentating normally. Thank oh, you. Wow. So essentially, and I can 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 I talk a little bit about periprocedural uh, steroids as well? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have a lot of experience in with periprocedural steroid dosing, but essentially, um, when patients are on prolonged steroid courses. Uh, the consideration is, you know, whether or not their HPA axis has been suppressed. So, uh, you know, for a prednisone dose of less than five a day, then there's no steroids needed. And then if there's a dose of 20 milligrams uh, daily for more than three weeks or they have clinical Cushing's, then um, you would assume HPA suppression. And then if it's indeterminate, for example, they've had steroid use in the last year, it can take time for the HPA axis to recover um, and therefore be somewhat unpredictable. Or if they've had doses kind of in between range from 5 to 20 milligrams for three weeks or more, then those are the patients you would want to assess their HPA axis. So we did do that. However, he ended up going to the OR urgently. Um, so in that case, you would want to give procedural steroid dosing. And uh, depending on the degree of stress from the surgery, uh, the uh, recommendations for hydrocortisone dosing are um, very. So the, this patient, uh, as I mentioned, he ended up doing well and had endocrinology follow-up as an outpatient, and his uh, cortisol at that time was um, 0.2, which is very low, basically undetectable. Um, His TSH was normal, and his ACTH was also low. Um, So he was clinically thought to have the diagnosis of secondary adrenal insufficiency from checkpoint inhibitor-induced hypophysitis, and with septic arthritis as the initial complicating uh, and inciting event. Wow. Wow. Okay, That's so great. so it, it was kind of two things were, were true at the same time, which is that although the cultures were, were ultimately negative, that knee was still felt to be, that was a septic knee, and that kind of tipped off the the background brewing hypophysitis or, or hypopit, which was caused by recent, although not, you know, days before exposure to checkpoint inhibitors. That's, uh, that's quite a story. And Steph, it's as you nice. mentioned... We were wondering the same thing as, you know, where was his source and uh, or, or why did he have uh, infected me in the first place? And um, he had a, a number of interesting skin changes, which we thought were perineoplastic, likely in etiology. Um, he had really diffuse ichthyosis and scaling of the skin, 
with some skin peeling and ID thought that perhaps that that was the, the portal of entry. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really, it's really nice. This is such a, a nice case in that you have these two things that happen nearly simultaneously prior to his admission to the hospital, which is that he stops antibiotics and stops steroids. <laughs> and, and so in those instances, it can really cloud what's going on. I think the reverse situation that I commonly see is is that uh, a patient will be seen for whatever in the in, in the hospital or in the outpatient environment, and two interventions are started simultaneously. Then something bad happens, and it's not totally clear what exactly the problem was. The same would also be true in this situation of two things were stopped that were obviously very active and important to how he was doing. Two things were stopped at the same time, and then he ends up in the hospital. And the differential diagnosis then remains much more broad than it would have been if you'd only stopped either the prednisone or the antibiotic at, at one time. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is that it, to me, the lesson isn't, is it, and actually, in, in fact, we're dealing with a pretty common problem for all of us as internists and whatever our stripes are, because we're dealing with someone who's probably got sepsis and shock and has all of these different uh, modalities contributing to it. I think the more difficult problem would be if he hadn't have had his knee flare up and he and still had his hypophysitis and um, and making that diagnosis or at least being aware that the potential as Danny brought up the hypophysitis secondary to the checkpoint inhibitors might have gone unnoticed for some time yeah. and may have caused more problems so in, in fact if anything the knee stopping the antibiotics caused the knee to make us pay attention to both problems. Although we nearly I think, died. Um, you know, yes, uh, other than that, I, I think also, as we kind of usually do, I think when we talk through cases is if we bump into a medical history item or a medication uh, or an infection or, or whatever it is, or, you know, a, an ingestion that we really just, we don't have any subject expertise on, we'd look it up. And and I just I just did that right now. And like, if you look up ipilimumab or nivolumab and hyponatremia, or you look those up and colitis and arthritis, you will find something, right? There there are cases of that, and so it it would take you hopefully like not too long to if you you literally never heard of those medications before, doing a quick Google search or PubMed search to try and just like quickly familiarize yourself with like, okay, is this, do I even need to know about this? Or is this like kind of none of my business would kind of lead you to be like, oh, huh, adrenal insufficiency, I should, you know, I'll, I'll put that on the list. It's probably not the most likely thing overnight. But as you collected all that additional info, you would have started maybe to look more at those medications with a, you know, a more suspicious eye. And I think we usually do that routinely is kind of circle the things that we really don't have subject expertise in so that we come back to it. Yeah, that's well put, Danny. Thank you, Barry. Any any other thoughts? And and uh, Michael, any other thoughts from you on this case as, as someone who's involved with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, um, you know, we don't have a lot of very procedural experience, but in terms of, you know, as a future rheumatologist and we uh, have a lot of patients that are on chronic steroids, and keeping in mind that this is a consideration for before, or, you know, very procedurally that, uh, that they may need stress of steroids. And um, you know, I think in his case, it was probably multifactorial in the sense that he had the uh, hypophysitis brewing, but also 
his HPA axis was uh, not as robust as it could have been with his recent steroids in the first place. So um, the other thing I like to do is just use the NCCN guidelines, the National Comprehensive Cancer Center Network guidelines. Um, anytime I'm admitting a patient on checkpoint inhibitors, just because it's really wonderful for guiding the differential and the workup and empiric treatment if you're worried enough about it based on the uh, severity of the potential immune-related adverse event. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, a really it, good suggestion. It, and if I if I may um, just point out that I, I think it was reasonable that you folks in hospital were not too terrified in in a case where you were being told by ortho, this person does have an infection in their knee. Like that that is what's happened here. Um, you weren't too terrified to give steroids. And we've definitely talked about that before that, you know, we kind of maybe the older, more simplistic view is like there's antibiotics and the, the opposite of antibiotics is steroids. And that that's not true, you know, as long as you have attempted source control or you put them on appropriate antibiotics, then even in our worst sepsis cases, there are some people who benefit from steroids. So it's not one or the other. Sometimes appropriately, it's both. And uh, to to have the kind of confidence to pull the trigger on that where indicated is is like, I think, a really important takeaway as well. Steph, any uh, any any thoughts as we kind of close out the case here? No, I, I really liked it. I have to say this is a real treat, uh, having someone like, you know, come to us with a case. So, so enjoyable. Totally. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for doing that, Michael. Yeah, it's I also I love seeing how um, people in other settings manage cases that that kind of makes me feel good that there's other people around the world who, <laughs> who are who kind of have a similar thought process to us. Um, so, uh, yeah, Michael, thank you so much. We really appreciate you bringing the case. And Michael, um, thank those people in San Francisco that taught me this. I, I think we, we've been taught by the same people because we're using the same approach. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure and I've thoroughly enjoyed all the episodes I could get my hands on. So it's, it's real special to be a part of one and to get to talk with you all today. Come back anytime. Um, and just before we go, we're supported by QXMD Reed and the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. We're produced by Nikki Thorpe of Bronit Consulting. And uh, we really appreciate all the listeners' continued support. So feel free to get in touch with any cases that come up. And until next time, talk to you later.